for episode 53 of Flying Podcast, it's back to the Light Aircraft Association. In episode 51, I spoke to Andy Draper about building your own plane. Uh, today, I'm talking to the editor of the LAA's magazine, Brian Hope, to get a bit more info about the association and to hopefully find out what their role is in uh, promoting general aviation here in the UK. We chatted about everything from the history of the association through the development of aircraft kits right up to today's LAA rally. So if you've ever wondered what the LAA is all about or thought how it might be possible to get flying on a shoestring, have a listen to what Brian has to say. Brian, as you know, um, I recently spoke to Andy Draper about building your own aircraft. Um, I wonder whether you could tell me a little bit more about uh, the Light Aircraft Association. Um, perhaps you could start with um, a brief history. Yes. Um, well, the LAA, um, as it's called now, um, originally started not long after the Second World War. Um, but home building itself really dates back to the, the very beginnings of powered aviation. Um, people like the Wright brothers were were amateur builders. Of course, they were uh, cycle, bicycle manufacturers by profession, and um, aviation was something of a a, a hobby, really. Um, after the the first war, civil aviation beca- became regulated for the first time, and right through the twenties, really, there was no provision for amateur builders. Though, of course, there were a few people toiling away in their gardens um, building airplanes uh, and home building as, a, as a, a hobby really took off in the UK when Frenchman Henri Mignet came over with his flying flea there was a huge groundswell of interest uh, and many projects were started and of course uh, they had one or two problems but ultimately it was uh, they were sorted but then the second war came of course and, and civil aviation effectively ended in the UK following the war um, there was a again a, because of the exploits of the RAF a lot more uh, trained pilots and um, and a lot of them wanted to continue flying but light aviation was expensive um, typically before the war it was the pastime of, of the reasonably wealthy um, and for the man in the street um, trying to afford to operate a light aircraft was beyond um, what they could afford and a group of people got together in 1946 to, to try and persuade the um, authorities that light aircraft did not need to be so regulated as far as building and maintaining them they could be built safely and operate on a, a more simple airworthiness regime. And they formed the Ultralight Aircraft Association. And, uh, and initially, they were really looking after groups that were, were buying war surplus tiger moths and miles messengers and the like and, and operating flying groups. And a small number who were building pre-war very lightweight aeroplanes like the um, the Luton Miner. Um, and as as time progressed through the 50s and 60s, um, some new designs, post-war designs came along, aircraft like the Turbulent and the Jodel D9. And the French really solved one of the major issues, which was a suitable light engine um, when they started converting the early Volkswagen Beetle engines for, for, for these light aircraft. And then 
through the 60s, 70s, people became progressively better off and better engines came along and were able to be imported mainly from the US. And people started building the lightweight two-seaters, Joe Dells, Whitman Tailwinds, and Godan minicabs, etc. And that takes us pretty well up to the to the 90s, the early 90s, when the kit revolution really took over and um, a huge influx of kits since, really, with vans and vans RV series and Jabaroos, sport cruisers, Technams, all manner of um, kits now available for people to build. Okay, the, there was a, the PFA for a period of time there, wasn't there? Yes, the, the ULAA became the, the PFA quite early on, around about 1950. Um, it was just felt that it was a better name. It, it stood for Popular Flying Association, and, and that, uh, that name stayed with us right through till 2005 or six when it, we changed to Light Aircraft Association again because it was felt that it was a more relevant name uh, as the association had developed considerably since the early days and it was uh, sort of a, a, a revamping of, of, of our aims and, um, and a new name. Okay, great. How many members uh, do you think you have now and uh, how many aircraft would you say come under your auspices? We have about 8,000 members, and we're pretty well holding our own despite the, um, the recession, really, which is, which is very positive. We normally have about 2,600 aircraft um, flying, um, actually airworthy aircraft operational at any one time. And that increases usually by about 100 a year at the moment. On top of that, there's about 1,500 kits and restorations and plans built airplanes that are ongoing and there's probably 800 or a thousand aircraft that are languishing in hangars and people's garages that maybe have have uh, either you know never quite got finished or need restoration or whatever okay i've always associated the uh, the pfa and the laa just with uh, with home builds but you also sort of oversee vintage aircraft as well don't you that's right. Um, this originally came around around during the uh, the nineteen sixties, I think, when the um, the Civil Aviation Authority relaxed their uh, rules for a while, um, which allowed some air, some aircraft like Luscombs and uh, J three Cubs and Aeronkers, etc., to to be imported into the UK and um, and put onto a permit to fly, and for for several years, there was quite an influx of, of cheap American imports. Um, unfortunately, they had a change of heart about uh, 10 or 15 years ago and stopped that process. Since then, though, um, it's particularly since EASA came along, the European Aviation Safety Agency, and uh, various rules and regulations have changed, and... Um, Aircraft now must have a type certificate holder who oversees the, on, the ongoing airworthiness of, of a particular model. It's now decided that if, if there isn't a type certificate holder uh, and nobody is prepared to take on a type responsibility agreement to look after a particular type, those types effectively become orphans um, and they are unable to hold a certificate of airworthiness and 
they then have the option of coming on to a permit, LAA permit, uh, or a CAA permit. And the vast majority of them come on to a LAA permit. Um, and in recent years, we've, we've had Stomps, Osters, um, and the larger Joe Dells. And recently, de Havilland Support, who look after the tiger moth, Scottish aviation, bulldog, chipmunk, etc., have decided to relinquish the type certificate, uh, and that will enable a number of those aircraft to come on to uh, the permit to fly if they wish. Okay. What would you say the uh, the broader mission is of the, the LAA? It's not just about uh, overseeing uh, aircraft safety and self-building, is it? I think the core of, of the LAA's business, if, if you will, is, um, is, is making aviation more affordable. The permit-to-fly system allows owners to undertake not only the building of, of complete new aircraft, either from kit or plans, but, but also undertake the maintenance. And many of the components for a permit aeroplane do not have to have quite the same level of documentation that a C of A type does. It has to be proved to be fit for purpose, for instance, rather than necessarily have to be manufactured with a, you know, a, a long sort of traceability of, of paperwork, etc. Which is the um, thing that makes those parts so expensive. That's what makes the parts expensive. I mean, you may actually, if you if you if you go to buy certain parts from, particularly from aircraft parts suppliers in the states. Um, you can buy certain components that are either certified or non-certified, and the price differential is, is quite huge. Yeah. So um, it, it does it does certainly save on maintenance costs, and you also, as I say, you can do the work yourself, and the uh, um, uh, an LAA inspector will come and check the work and, and sign it off. And from a safety aspect, there is no difference to a C of A. The aircraft have to be inspected, they have to be signed off, they have a, a permit inspection every year, and the safety record of permit aeroplanes is extremely good, but the costs are considerably less. In addition to uh, those things you've just mentioned, um, you also get involved in training GA pilots, don't you, and encouraging pilots to fly? Yes, we don't train ab initio. We, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that that that's best left to the uh, to the flying clubs. Yeah. What we do have though is a pilot coaching scheme where we try to uh, help new pilots that have, that have come to the LAA. They may, for instance, have, have learned on Cessnas and, and PA28s and want to buy an RV6 or or something similar. That's a tailwheel pilot, a tailwheel aircraft, and um, and they need tailwheel difference training. Um, or they, they may have bought a, an LAA aeroplane that's got a constant speed pro propeller and retractable gear. Yep. Um, so the pilot coaching scheme is, is effectively um, you, fl you, you, you use your own aircraft usually and uh, an experienced coach, many of whom are uh, also flying instructors. They, they can take you through tailwheel training, farm strip flying, aerobatics, display authorizations, all, all manner of, uh, of opportunities there to improve your flying. Even just 
refresher courses really if you're if you haven't flown for a while and are a bit rusty um the, the, the whole thing is geared to to trying to improve the general standard of of uh, piloting skills uh, within the LAA um and um, it, it's it's proved to be quite a popular option yeah i could understand that how does someone go go on if um, for example i was I've just reading one of your old magazines about someone building a team minimax a single seater if you come to you and say I need some differences training in a single seat. What, what do you do? Do you train them in something similar or what? Yes. I, um, single seat training is always a problem, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, for instance, if, you, if, if, you, uh, if it was a high-performance um, single seater, you, let's say somebody built a Vans RV3, which is a single seater, you could, you could do some difference training in, in an RV4, uh, which is a tandem version of the RV3, um, and you, I, I think really that the option is to find an aircraft with a two-seat version of an aircraft with similar handling traits, uh, and um, and do some conversion training on that, and then with with thorough pilot briefing and the pilot being instructed obviously to to mo- only to fly within certain limits of crosswind wind strength etc and then to build his experience slowly is is the way to go right in addition to um what you've just mentioned there about um promoting amateur construction engineering support overseeing the operation of vintage aircraft what else does the laa get involved in i'm thinking along the lines of um i've I've heard of the uh, educational trust courses Yes, that was something that we established about five years ago. Um, clearly, when somebody buys a, a kit aircraft um, to build or they want to build from plans, many many of those people may not may not be technical people. They they, they may have jobs or, or experience that, that are far removed from building aeroplanes. So. Um, Yes, um, the courses is something we started about um, five years ago, mainly to to encourage new new members that, that building a kit or, or buying a permit type aeroplane and maintaining it yourself wasn't something that was really um, just for people with technical skills. Obviously, many people who wish to build an aeroplane might be bank managers or plumbers or who knows what yeah, but yeah. Um, in order to learn the skills we we set up a number of courses for in subjects such as aluminium working in aluminium for instance um, electrical wiring for aircraft woodwork uh, various uh, types of engine maintenance courses um, and the, the idea being to give them a, a grounding in the subject really um, to, to to enable them to sort of take those first tentative steps, um, and these courses have, have been very popular. And a lot of builders will, will go on a course. They're not expensive. They they range from usually from about eighty to about one hundred and twenty pounds for a full day. Most of them are hands-on courses. You, um, in the aluminium working in aluminium course, for instance, um, the, the the students build. Um, toolbox, an actual toolbox. It's a kit supplied by Vans, which is designed to take them through the various stages of drilling, dimpling, riveting, etc. So that when they start on their uh, expensive or relatively expensive first 
components like the tailplane, um, they've got a basic understanding of, of, of how they can how they should build it. And, and as I say, the courses have uh, have been very well supported, and we are adding to them pretty much each year. We try and add some new courses because um, we realise that um, the members particularly appreciate them. Brian, I think you were involved in uh, what the LAA called the struts, which are like local member groups of, uh, of LAA members. Tell me a little bit more about how the, the struts work and how they sort of work to uh, support members in, uh, in their self-building projects. Yeah, the, 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 the strut system really is, is the name that's given to the various local groups around the country. Um, and the, the word strut came about many years ago um, when they decided that the struts were a support network propped up the main uh, association as it were there are about somewhere between 35 and 40 active struts around the country and they range quite broadly in in, in the kind of activities they undertake generally they they have a social function in that, that most of them meet on a regular basis once a month um, they will have guest speakers, for instance, um, coming to, to do talks. They they then organise things like fly-ins and fly-outs, uh, so that uh, you know their members can go somewhere on mass, uh, which is which is particularly helpful to inexperienced pilots because um, if you want to fly abroad, for instance, it's a bit daunting. And but when somebody takes you through the ropes, it's a relatively straightforward. Um, exercise and um, uh, other struts will organize um, a speaker that will come and talk about flight safety or or experiences he had during the war or people that have flown around the world in home-built airplanes all all manner of uh, of social opportunities really speaking of flying abroad obviously then if you have a permit aircraft you are allowed to fly anywhere in europe i would take it not quite well you (laughs) It's not quite um, that, that straightforward. There, we, there are a number of agreements with other states around Europe where a blanket permission applies. And, and you, so you can just, France, for instance, you can just fly to France. There's a blanket permission that allows uh, British home-built aeroplanes to fly in France and French home-built to fly in the UK. Uh, and that, there are many of those agreements. There are a few countries where you have to seek permission. But that's a relatively straightforward email process. Um, so there are no real constraints um, to fly in uh, home-built aircraft abroad. Um, we just had a member, in fact, that um, last October, September, flew his RV6 to Cape Town and back. Oh, wow. Um, we have another member that flew an RV around the world two or three years ago. And yet another RV builder who recently, I said recently, within the last couple of years, broke the London, Cape Town and back record um, set by uh, Alex Henshaw um, many years ago and subsequently broken by a, a South African chap. So, yeah, there's the, you know, there and about the extremes, of course, for the, but I mean, every any weekend during the summer, you know, very many LAA members will fly to rallies around Europe. So with a bit of effort, you, the, the world is your oyster. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, the days many years ago when, when the LAA was a, a fairly young and sort of relatively small association with 
not a huge number of aeroplanes. There was kind of a uh, kind of a, a view, I suppose, that these were little playthings. You know, they weren't real aeroplanes. They they just sort of flew around the circuit and stayed local. Um, that certainly isn't the case today. I, I think it's fair to say that home-built aeroplanes actually lead the way in technology. Um, many of them are far, far advanced to the to the commercial offerings, which to a great extent are hamstrung by regulation. Yes. It's, it's so expensive now to, to launch a new commercial aeroplane that most companies simply don't do it. You know, we've got Cirrus, of course, but but I mean, if you look at the Cessna and Piper ranges, uh, they're aeroplanes that actually date back 40 years yeah. um, com- compared to the to the latest Vans aircraft and Technams and the like. They're they're actually technically quite sort of old. Yeah, it's like sitting in a, an old Ford Anglia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to sound as though I'm decrying those. They're, they're good aeroplanes. I mean, the Cessna and the Cherokee, for instance, have been the mainstay of the training fleets for years. And they do a good job, but you know, if you consider a Vans RV7 on the same engine that's in a in your Piper Cherokee, will cruise sort of around around about 40 knots faster. Yeah. Uh, on you know on the same same fuel burn. I mean, it, you know, they are they are much much faster, more sprightly, and purposeful aeroplanes today. I presume it was the uh, the LAA uh, campaigning in Europe that uh, allowed. Uh, the uh, owners of home-built aircraft to uh, to fly across the channel, etc. Uh, what sort of uh, other issues does the LAA campaign on? Well, in recent years, and this was part part of why the the Popular Flying Association became the Light Aircraft Association. Ten years ago, probably very little time was spent by the uh, the LAA or PFA, as it was then. Um, consulting with uh, airworthiness authorities, the CAA, EASA, of course, didn't exist, um, because, they were, you know, life was simpler, I, I suppose you could say. Um, today, there are huge pressures on, on, on aviation. Um, commercial air transport is continually expanding. They want more airspace to operate within. Uh, they want that airspace to themselves to a large extent. So I, I suppose airspace issues is is the main problem area that, that, that we've become very much involved in. We're fortunate in that we, we have good standing within the aviation community with the CAA and EASA, Department for Transport, etc. Um, and we now are in, involved in many consultations at an early stage and to try and, and safeguard the benefits, not just of our own members, but of GA pilots across the country. Um, Things, for instance, like the Olympic airspace, um, I, I think GA generally worked very well together, LAA with uh, fellow members of what's called the GA Alliance, which are many of the other associations, were able to put forward very strong cases to, to the DFT and get considerable support from Nats and the CAA in, in order to ensure that we had a workable solution, because don't forget, from, an, from very early on, it was looking as though the Olympic airspace issue was going to effectively ground an awful lot of GA pilots, in, in, mainly in the southeast of England. Uh, that was cut down to a month, and there is now a very workable solution to be able to fly during the Olympics. So 
Uh, it's those kinds of issues that the LAA get involved in, and it takes an increasing amount of effort and obviously expense for us to do that. You mentioned uh, there that LAA aircraft are um, pushing the boundaries of technology. Are there any exciting developments you can tell me about that you've uh, you've seen recently in uh, some of the aircraft that you go and have a look at? I, I think really that the, the, the technology uh, today is is aimed at fuel economy. Um, I think if you look at the modern generation of light aircraft, they are tending to become much lighter in weight, more streamlined, um, and with smaller smaller engines. Nine, the Rotax 912 is a prime example, for instance. I mean, they've just... The 912 started out as, a, as, a, as an engine for experimental-type light aircraft, and it, it, it then became... a um, a certified engine and, and is used in some certified types as well now that that has developed into the very latest 912 the the fuel injected engine that was that was announced only a, a couple of weeks ago yeah. uh, and will certainly soon find its way into a, a number of home-built aircraft technologically as well the the glass cockpit very many modern aircraft today end up with glass cockpits that would have that would have done a, you know, the latest airliner justice even five years ago. Full glass panels, uh, all that technology is is just burgeoning. I mean, it's going on and on, and, and I don't know where the <laughs> where the end will come. You know, it's it's so far removed from the the basic panels that that still grace most commercial. You yeah, know, yeah. Andy, you know, uh, I think Andy said last last time uh, when I was talking to him, he was off to have a look at. A racer, a composite racer with uh, an electric engine and one of those yes, unique engines. Where is yeah. he up to now? Yes, with electric aircraft, um, there, there's been some development uh, around the world, really. There's, there's some good good work going on in France. There's, there's the much-publicized work that's gone on in China uh, and, and obviously in the States. Not a huge amount in the UK to date. But uh, the LAA have, uh, have undertaken to help promote electric aeroplanes and, and by, mainly by easing the path through to, to operating and certification of them. And there's a chap who's developing um, a, a racer. Um, it's an all-composite aircraft. He launched the design at the um, NEC flying show in 2010, at that stage, it was just uh, really a plug, fiberglass plug. It looked like an aeroplane, but it was it was something to take the moulds off. It, it was the mould, yeah. It was, it was the plug for the mould. Um, yeah. That's that's slowly de- being developed, and um, I believe he's he's been getting some help from some major companies. I'm not aware at the moment exactly when it's uh, it's it's due to fly or anything like that, but it's certainly making progress. So. It's, it's very new technology and, and very dependent, I think, on on battery development. Uh, and I suspect that development will come mainly from other areas, automotive, etc., yeah. uh, and be yeah. adapted for aircraft rather yeah. than be aircraft-specific development. Okay. Uh, over the last few years, uh, the LAA, LAA rally has sort of, uh, floundered a little bit, hasn't it? But I think it's, uh, it's coming back and uh, is now successful and uh, hopefully is here for the future. Where is it going to be this year? Uh, the rally, yes, the rally. Uh, we 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 held an LA, a, a PFA rally for very many years. It had unfortunately been allowed to 
um, to kind of run away with itself, I suppose you could say. It became increasingly expensive, uh, and through the early 2000s, it was losing money, which became unacceptable. So in 2006, we we stopped having the rally, and for three years we didn't we didn't uh, we didn't have a, a national rally. We held some smaller regional events, but then in 2009, we we were able to uh, broker a deal with Cywell Aerodrome in Northamptonshire, and we now hold our rally there. In, it's, a, it's a sort of a partnership deal, really, and um, it's worked very well. And and and, he's be- and once again establishing itself as as the, the premier fly-in exhibition type event in the UK. I was going to say, if somebody wants more details about uh, when and where. How could they find that out? Well, as I say, it's at Northampton Sywell, and it's on from the 31st of August and the, to the 1st and 2nd. It's, it's 31st of August, 1st and 2nd of September. We're expecting upwards of a 1,000 aircraft to fly in. There's a, a major trade exhibition where you can see kit aircraft, the latest avionics, pilot supplies, etc. We have entertainment. Uh, we have a band on the on the Saturday night when there is presentation of awards and uh, a good old uh, knees up and the beer festival, plenty to see and do, and it's very inexpensive to come. Um, it, it's uh, if you come uh, as a member of the LAA, it only costs you five pounds to get in for the full three days, and if you're a non-member, it's it's ten pounds for the full three days. So make a date and make sure you come it's 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 not to be missed okay i'll put a link to the uh, laa website on my website so if people are interested then go and look there and uh, find out all the details etc yes i mean our website address for those that want to know is www.laa.uk.com uh, and there is uh, there is a video actually on the on the website um of, of last year's some of the aircraft that arrived at last year's event great stuff how did you get into the uh, the LAA yourself, Brian? Well, I, I learnt to fly in 1976, uh, and, and I really learnt to fly because um, I'd uh, I'd seen an article in in a do-it-yourself magazine by a chap, uh, which was which was a, which was a magazine my mother used to buy because you know, as most families know it's the mother that, that drives the, the decorating and the whatever yeah. around the house yeah. and uh, in this this do-it-yourself magazine was a was a story of a chap who'd built a Luton duet God. a guy called Alf Knowles who incidentally became LA, a PFA chairman some years later and it just completely I mean it, I, at that point I'd never even been in an aeroplane on holiday let, let alone flown one did you but used to build it, models it, when you were a lad <laughs> No, not really. No, I, I was. I came up through motorcycling, and I used to do some racing um, uh, at that point. I was in my in my early twenties at the time. But this just fired my imagination, and, and about three years later, I, I decided that that I would uh, learn to fly and um, and maybe build an aeroplane. So I joined the the PFA very early on in my flight training, um, and I've been a member ever since. Um, but I. I I knew, it took me some years to before I actually got my own aircraft. Um, and um, did you build I've, one uh, yourself? No, I I, I, I bought a, a, a permit aircraft, a Joe Dell, uh, in 1987, 
and I've owned it ever since and flown about two and a half thousand hours in it. And I simply couldn't have afforded to do that with a C of A aeroplane. It would be totally, I'm only an ordinary working chap, yeah. uh, and it would have been totally beyond my means. Whereas with the PFA, um, I've been able to maintain the aircraft all those years and operate it on a shoestring, really, compared to the cost of operating a C of A type. Um, what sort of Jodel have you got? It's a D117, which is a two-seater. It was built in 1957. Um, they're remarkable yeah. aircraft aren't they? they they get a lot of performance out of very small engines don't they yes uh, i mean it's 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 all wood and fa- with fabric covering so that it's built quite light and it's got a 90 horsepower engine it cruises at about 95 knots burning 20 liters an hour the, the, the real thing about them is that they're a great touring airplane and, and my jodel's taken me all over europe as far east as was hungry probably and up into scandinavia down to italy spain you know I, it's it's a, been a good touring airplane it's uh, you know the, the, that's one of the good things about the laa in my view is is that you don't have to have a specific goal in mind but you can pretty much tailor the laa to suit what you want to do if you want to to have a uh, you know a very basic single-seat aeroplane that you just want to fly around, maybe go to the odd fly-in somewhere, uh, but pretty much just something to get up in the air, you know, on a nice evening or weekend. Um, you can build something like a Minimax or buy something like a, a Minimax or a Turbulent or a single little single-seater like that with a, v, uh, with a VW engine. Or if you want to go transcontinental, you can build yourself a very fast and capable aeroplane like a Vans RV sort of six or seven. Um, or if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're into replica aeroplanes, you, you're, you're a nostalgic type. We got, um, you know, you can build first World War replicas, second World War replicas. You can buy vintage aircraft. We, we've got vintage aeroplanes that date back to the early 30s. There is a kit Spitfire flies out of Barton, and it does look the part. I think it's only like an 80%, but it it does look... (laughs) Yes, the aircraft you're talking about is the Mark 26A, which is the 80% replica. That company now produced the Mark 26B, which is a 90% replica, and one of the engine options is um, a a V6 American automotive engine, which has um, recently been flown for the first time in the UK, so um, we should see some... Yeah, some some uh, some of the larger versions flying very soon. I've seen that one. It's got a very strange looking cowl, hasn't it? Like it's been squared off. I don't know if that's the production model, but it looks a bit odd. The pictures I've seen look okay. I've not seen it in the flesh. Right now, Brian, your current role is uh, you edit the magazine. What's the magazine called? The magazine's called Light Aviation. And it's a great little magazine. I uh, I love reading that, and uh, I think yeah. it's almost uh, worth the uh, subscription to the. Uh, association just to get the magazine but uh, other than that why should somebody join the laa um well i i think if you're if you're an active pilot um and you're or maybe you're a club pilot or you're learning to fly i think uh, you should join because it offers a huge range of, of opportunities to fly less expensively more bang to the buck as they say in the states yeah you can you can buy a permit aircraft you can join a a syndicate that are operating a permit air- aircraft and without doubt your operating costs per hour will come down significantly meaning you can either afford to do it at all or you can 
certainly fly more than you can than you're currently affording to do when renting club aircraft if you're a pilot that's perfectly happy to to rent or own c of a types i think you should consider joining because of the the good work we do uh, in safeguarding uh, an environment in which ga can flourish i think without associations like ourselves and and a number of other associations uh, constantly making sure that the GA perspective is considered when uh, commercial air transport is, is looking for more airspace or, or Ofcom is looking for more increased taxes on uh, frequencies, for instance, or Europe try to increase the fuel tax on recreational aviation fuels. I think when all of those kinds of aspects are, are areas that affect all of G, all GA, and I think just as a as a yachts, yachtsman or a motorboat enthusiast should be making his regular contributions to the lifeboat funds, I think GA pilots should join an association. I'd like to think they would want to join us, but I think they should join an association that is working on their behalf because the more people that, that unite with behind the associations, the stronger the voice and the more the more affordable and positive our our um, consultations and lobbying can be, both with the ASA and with the UK authorities. Okay, well that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much. Yep, definitely a big thanks to Brian. As I said, I'll add the contact details for the LAA onto the Flying Podcast website. So if you want more information about the uh, the LAA uh, membership or their rally at Cywell, have a look uh, for their link on the Flying Podcast website. Uh, that, of course, is uh, flyingpodcast.co.uk. Uh, I'll definitely try and get down to the rally this year, so if, uh, if any of you guys are going, I'll probably see you there. Uh, I'm actually going to try and find uh, a builder, an aircraft builder, someone that's self-building, uh, to interview for a podcast. I've often wondered myself how hard it, uh, it would actually be to build your own plane. So if there's any uh, self-builders out there that uh, fancy coming on the podcast, drop me a line. Uh, the email address, of course, again, is steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Well, that's it for another episode of Flying Podcast. As I say, please send me an email if you'd like to take part or just send your comments or thoughts and ideas for future episodes, whatever. Uh, thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.